Well, we've come to uh, the final Sunday in Advent, uh, and Christmas Day is a couple of days away. Uh, and for many, it's a, a, bit, a busy time of year. Uh, so it's good that we can come uh, and we can think again about what this is all about, that, that, that the incarnation. And I wonder if I was to ask you, how amazed are you at the incarnation? Uh, what, would you, what would you say? How amazed, how awestruck are you at what God has done in becoming flesh? Uh, for those that aren't aware, the incarnation is uh, a word uh, Christians use to, to, that means when God, the Son, became flesh so we can be saved from our sins. And it's an amazing truth if we think about it. The Almighty God, the God of the whole universe, became flesh. Uh, it struck me uh, just the other week, I mentioned this at the men's Christmas dinner, as I, I wasn't holding Phoebe at the men's Christmas dinner, but I was able to hold her at church a couple of weeks ago. Uh, here is a baby that we're able to, to hold, and it struck me as I held this baby that this is what Almighty God became. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a, just a, a mind-blowing truth? That the all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God who has no needs whatsoever became a tiny baby who was helpless, crying, dependent, and he came to live a perfect life so that he could die in the place of sinners. Isn't that just awesome? That God Almighty became this. We can become so busy uh, in our preparations for Christmas that we can forget what this is all about, can't we? And I would uh, say that this morning, uh, let's spend some time thinking again, thinking perhaps afresh about this wondrous truth. And we're going to do that as we look at Psalm 24. Uh, Psalm 24 speaks to us in a way which shows the glory of the Incarnation by showing the glory of the God who became flesh. Psalm 24 shows us the King of glory. So let's read Psalm 24. Uh, Psalm 24, it's of David, a psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, 
that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Amen. Well, this psalm uh, teaches us three truths about the kind of king our God is. It shows us that he is, first of all, the creator king, then that he is the holy king, and then that he is the glorious king. The creator king, the holy king, and the glorious king. And as we see these truths about the Lord, we're going to see that Jesus is this king. And then look at the wonderful and terrifying truths and implications that this has for us. So firstly, the Lord is the creator king. Verse 1 says, the earth. And it's talking of the whole earth, every single part of the earth. And it's the Lord's. And everything in it. The whole earth, every part of it, and everything in it is the Lord's. It's a, a general ownership of it all. From the, the tiniest atom, that's the Lord's, to the highest and greatest mountain, that's the Lord's, to the depths of the seas, it's the Lord's. He owns all of it. There's not a single part of it that God does not own. And then the second half of that verse speaks about a more specific part of it that God owns. So he owns the earth and everything in it, and the world, and all who live in it. Every creature is owned by the Lord. And that includes you and me. We are owned by the Lord. It includes every person who has ever lived, from the most absolute despot to the wealthiest person, all of them, everybody, are tenants in a world that is owned by God, and he can end their tenure at any time he pleases. The whole earth and everything in it is the Lord's, and so is the world and all who live in it. Well, why is it that God can claim to own everything in this way? Well, verse 2 gives us the reason why. Because, or for, he founded it on the seas. The creator controls the seas. The seas which are uh, chaotic. He controls them and he brings land onto it. He founded the earth, or the land, on the seas. Listen to how God did this in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9. And God said... Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. He controls the seas and in doing so, he brought land upon the seas. By speaking, by the very words of his mouth, God brought earth onto the seas. And it says in uh, verse 2 also, he established it on the waters. And the verb there, to establish, 
is in a continual sense in the original. That is, he continues to establish it. It goes on and on. So he owns the whole earth and everything and everyone in it because he is its founder and its sustainer. He is your founder and your sustainer. We only exist because God allows us to exist. He owns everyone and everything in the whole universe. God is the creator king. And this has implications for us. Here are two implications for us that God is the creator king. The first implication is worship. God created the world and everything in it for his glory. And as its owner, he designed it for that purpose. So everyone and everything in the world is to give God glory. That means for us, as people are owned by God, we are obliged, we are made to give him our worship through our obedience, through doing what God wants us to do, living how God says we ought to live, praising him, giving him glory. He created us. He owns us for his glory. We are to worship. But there's a second implication that is linked to that, and it's the implication of rest. Rest. If we are made to worship God, if he is our creator and our sustainer, if we are designed to give him glory, then it's only by living as he designed us to live that we're going to find true rest in the world that he has made. One early church writer, Augustine, famously says it well. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. God made everything and everyone for his glory. We are to worship him and will only find true rest if we do so. Well, how is it that we can find that worship and rest in the Lord? Well, we need to have a relationship with him, which is behind the question in verse 3. Look at that question. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, of the, the creator Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Well, to ascend means that there's an effort. You can't just float into God's presence. The mountain there speaks of God's position being high and lifted up. In other words, he is above us. And to stand in his holy place means that rather than being blown away or rejected an audience, we are able to stay there. For example, uh, I can't stand in the presence of the queen unless she allows me to be there. I can't go to Buckingham Palace, knock on the door, and say, oh, do you fancy a cup of tea? I'd be taken away. God is the creator king. And so people can uh, relate to him by ascending and standing in his holy place. But who can do it? Well, the answer to this question is a condition. We can't just begin to ascend the mountain of the Lord and stand in his holy place. We have to be prepared because the second thing we see about God is the Lord is a holy king. 
The implication from this question is that some can ascend and stand. And verse 4 tells us the condition of those who can ascend his mountain and stand in his holy place. Look at verse 4. Who can do this? It's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They can stand. They, they can climb the mountain. They can stand in the holy place. Well, there are four conditions given there, aren't there? Four of them. There are clean hands. That refers to our actions. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, we'll read phrases like that God requires hands that are innocent of blood or of shedding blood. It talks about uh, the hands it being used in the action of murder, for example, there. And so when it says clean hands, it's talking about what we do with them, our, our actions. They've got to be clean. That's the first condition, clean hands. Then it says a pure heart. Pure can, can also mean clean, but it also means unmixed. So for example, if I said to you, I like to drink pure water, you would know what I mean. It's water that is, yes, clean, but also has nothing in it that is mixed. The heart is to be pure. And the heart speaks of our attitudes, our, our innermost being. It must be clean and not mixed. In other words, our motives must be pure. We're not to try and please God to get glory ourselves or to get pats on the back and all those kind of things. So we've got to have clean hands, our, our actions. We need pure hearts, our attitudes. Not trusting in an idol is the third condition, which is also uh, can be translated, uh, does not lift up his soul to what is false. It speaks of our devotion. In other words, who does not worship something else other than God. It's what we are giving ourselves to, what we are devoted to. That's the third condition. Not trusting in an idol, but rather devoted to God. And then the fourth condition is, does not swear by a false God. It refers to how we speak. Uh, Jesus talks about swearing or making vows in the Sermon on the Mount. How, we, how we're supposed to tell the truth always. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. That's the kind of uh, meaning here. It's how we, how we talk. Our, 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 and how, and how we, we speak about God. Not relying on false gods, but speaking in worship of the true God. So then you can look at these conditions of those who can have a relationship with their creator king as those who are righteous in their actions, in their attitudes, in their thoughts, and in their words. And if we are like that, verse 5 gives us two benefits that come from it. If we can ascend the mountain of the Lord and stand in his holy place, they will receive blessing from the Lord. What does that mean? Well, well blessing here is referring to the favor of God. In the context of verses 1 and 2, Blessing is the rest that comes from knowing and relating to the God who makes us and owns us. It's having rest because we know and worship God. And secondly, verse 5 says that they will receive vindication from their God. Vindication means a right standing. 
it means that no one can speak against you. So if I was to uh, be in, in court and I was to be vindicated, it would mean that nobody could accuse me of anything because I'm vindicated. I am in a right standing. And so those that are, are, are vindicated by the Lord means that when you stand in his holy place, no one can say they shouldn't be there because of something they've done or said or thought or their attitude isn't right. Now, in verse 5, it says that they have vindication from God, their Savior. But it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? The Lord is my creator king. I'm invited to worship and to find rest in him. And when I do that, when I ascend his mountain and stand in his holy place, I have his blessing and I am vindicated. So I, and that means I can stay there. I can continue being blessed. And I don't have to leave. But have you noticed the problem yet? Well, the problem is found in a few words in verses 4 and 5. The first uh, two words at the very beginning of verse 4, the one, and then verse 5, they. Those words are problems because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are not the one who has clean hands and pure hearts and doesn't trust in an idol or swear by a false god. We are not the one, neither are we in the group of the they who are meeting the conditions of verse 4. You see, to get the blessing or vindication, you need to be the one who is, or the they who are, completely righteous in our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts, and our words. And if I was to say, let's raise our hands, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Who is going to do that? Raise your hands, because mine's going down. I can't, I can't say that my hands are, are clean and my heart is pure and I've never trusted in an idol and my words have always been uh, wonderful and, and honest and I've never sworn by a false god. I can't say that, can you? Are you in the, that group of the they? But the answer is actually found at the end of verse 5. Look at what it says about God. Who do they find vindication from? Look at what it says. From God, their Savior. God, their Savior. They can ascend and they can stand because they have a Savior. God himself. God is their Savior. In the Old Testament... God saved his people from their sin by providing a sacrificial system where animals took the place of the sinner and looked forward to the coming of a greater and once and for all sacrifice that would deal with all of their sin. And so for these people in the Old Testament, at the time the psalm was written before Jesus, they could ascend the mountain and stand in the holy place because they trusted in the sacrifices that God had provided for their sin and they looked forward to a Messiah who would bear all their sin. God was able to forgive those who sought him. And that's the point there in verse 6, if you look at that. Such is, you know, those who receive blessing and vindication... Such is the generation of those who seek him. 
Now, when we say generation, when we think of generation, we think of a, a specific time period. So I, in my generation, um, in our family, we've got grandparents, parents, me, and my children. That's, we think of four generations. But here, it doesn't mean a time span. The word generation speaks more of uh, the type of people or the breed or family likeness. So the, the type of person who receives the blessing and vindication of the Lord are those who seek the face of the Lord. The Lord who can give this, the God who is their saviour. And there is a reference here to Jacob. Now translators have put in the text here, uh, God of Jacob. But the, the, the phrase God of isn't in the original. It actually reads something like this. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Jacob. And the meaning is more, uh, who seek your face like Jacob. Now it could mean uh, that they are true descendants of uh, the character Jacob from Genesis. Or more likely it means that they act like Jacob acted in Genesis chapter 32 when he wrestled with God and would not let him go until he received a blessing from God. He sought God and God blessed him. But the main point is this. Those who have clean hands, pure hearts, do not seek after idols and do not swear by a false god, can seek the Lord and find his blessing. And at this point in the psalm, at the end of verse 6, some translations uh, keep that Hebrew word selah, which probably means uh, pause and reflect. And so let's do that. Let's stop at verse 6 for a moment and take stock and reflect on what these verses mean. And we can look at them now in the light of the New Testament. We all need blessing and vindication from God so that we can worship him and find rest. That is our great need as humanity, isn't it? To find rest. And we can only find true rest and forgiveness and all those things in God our Savior, in our Creator. And it's because of Jesus that we can do this. The Lord, we have seen, is the creator king in verses 1 and 2. And the New Testament sorry, speaks of Jesus in the same way. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1. In these days, these last days, that's God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see how it describes Jesus? He made the universe. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, for he made it. And it says at the end there, he sustains all things by his powerful word. He establishes it on the seas. In our Bible reading earlier, John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by him, that is Jesus. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Who can ascend the mountain and stand in his holy place? Well, no one on their own merit, but God our Savior deals with the problem by coming down the mountain. 
And here is the wonder, the, the awesomeness of the incarnation, isn't it? Don't, now, don't let this be over-familiar. Try and look at this afresh. Jesus, the God and King who is the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, came down the mountain of the Lord. He came down it, and he lived a life that was perfect. So that when we ask the question of verse 4, who can, sta- who, are, who, who can stand in his holy place? And the, who can ascend his mountain? Who can stand in his holy place in verse 3? Jesus can put his hand up to verse 4 because he has clean hands and a pure heart. He's never trusted in an idol or sworn by a false god. He can say, I can ascend it. But rather than ascend the mountain of the Lord, first of all, he goes to the very depths of hell as he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin as our substitute. He dies in our place. He was the once and for all sacrifice that all the other ones were pointing towards. And when we trust in that sacrifice, we are given the merits of Christ to our account. And we are vindicated. When we stand in that courtroom before God, Jesus has paid for our sins. So we can ascend the mountain of the Lord. We can stand in that holy place because Christ has done all that is necessary for us to be there. He has given us clean hands and pure hearts. All of the things that we have done and thought and said that are, and our attitudes that have been wrong have been forgiven and paid for by the Lord Jesus. And we can have that relationship with God, that wonderful worship and that, that rest that we were made for because God became flesh and did all that was necessary for us to have it. Isn't that wonderful? We can have that rest with God because Jesus has provided all that's needed for us to have it. That's the message of Christmas, isn't it? You see? He's done that for us. But at the same time, we are challenged by this psalm to live out that which Christ has made us. There is a right standing with God. When we stand before him, no one can say, you don't deserve to be there. Or rather, they can say that, They can say, Steve, you don't deserve to be here. And I'll say, I know. I know I don't deserve to be here. But Jesus says, but he does deserve it because I've paid for his sin. He can be here because I deserve to be here. That's what Jesus says. So there is right standing. But that doesn't mean, therefore, that we can now live unclean, impure, idolatrous, and false lives. Although we're forgiven of our sins and the penalty has been paid for, we still have a relationship with our Father. And that means that we are required to have right actions and attitudes and thoughts and words if we're going to enjoy the blessings of that relationship which we've been given. It's a little bit like being uh, a child of God. It's like being a a child in a home. You're not going to lose your status of being your parent's child. But your life is going to be pretty miserable if you never do, as your parents say. The house is going to be a place of tension and difficulty 
if you're constantly rebelling against your parents. When sin abounds in the home and is allowed to rule, the home is not a place of rest. And in the same way, we're never going to lose our standing with God if he has paid for our sin. But the way to true rest in the house of God is to have a concern for holiness in our lives. Indeed, increasing holiness in our lives is a sign that we are part of God's family. It's interesting to note uh, another connection with Jacob. Before he wrestled with God and found that blessing, he had a dream where he sees angels ascending and descending a ladder between heaven and earth. And Jesus says this about that dream in John chapter 1, verse 51. Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a name for Jesus, and what he's saying here is he is the only way that we can ascend the mountain of the Lord. He's the only way that we can get to heaven. He's the only way because he is the God who came down the mountain so that we can go up. Well, verses uh, 3 to 6 very much focus on our relationship with God, on man being able to relate to God. But verses 7 to 10 of Psalm 24 change the focus. In those verses, God is on the move. He is coming to man. And these verses are a description of a king who has won a battle and is coming into uh, in a procession to claim the citadel that he has conquered. That's the image. A, a victorious king who has won a battle and he's coming with his, his armies and in, in procession and he's coming to enter into this city that he has conquered. And in verses 7 to 9, the people in the procession are calling out for the gates and the doors of the citadel to be opened up. And the gatekeepers, at the beginning of verses 8 and 10, are asking, well, who is it that we're supposed to open these gates for? Why should we open the gates to you? And then the people in the procession are answering the question of who this person is. That's what's going on here. You've got this, this procession coming along to the, the citadel, and the gatekeeper's saying, well, hold on, why, why, why do I open my gates to you? And they say, well, because this is who this king is. That's what's going on. And when we see who this person is, who this king is, we see that the Lord is the glorious king. The Lord is described here as the king of glory. Well, it's worth asking, first of all, what, what does glory mean? When we're saying someone is the king of glory, what, what is glory? Well, glory here speaks of the infinite worth and infinite greatness of God. The infinite worth and infinite greatness of God. Only God can be the king of glory. No other king has infinite worth and greatness as God has. Now, we might say sometimes, 
uh, we might see something beautiful and say, isn't it glorious? And we'd be right. Sometimes things are glorious. But they're only glorious to an extent. God is the infinite king of glory. He is as glorious as, as glory can be. That's what's being described here. That's our God. The Lord is the, the glorious king, the king of glory. And he is described in uh, verse 8. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The king of glory is the Lord, which is uh, the unique name of God for his people. And he has won battles for them. So he is a warrior king. Who was, uh, and and, and the, the, the warrior king who has won battles is the context of his coming here. So, what does it refer to? Well, it doesn't necessarily here refer to a specific one time event where the king of glory has come. It's explaining in poetic language how God has come and is coming as the king of glory. And there are a number of ways in the Bible where this coming bears itself out. So in the Old Testament, there were times when the glory of God came among the people. We see this, for example, when the, in Exodus, when the tabernacle is established, and God's glory comes and descends. Or uh, after uh, uh, he uh, has won a, a battle and the Ark of the Covenant comes, we see God's glory coming into the tabernacle, a symbol of God's presence. And at that time, as the Ark of the Covenant comes, uh, gates are opened and heads are lifted up as they look at the Lord coming in his glory. And it was a wonderful thing for God's people that God was present to bless them. But it was also terrifying because if you messed around with the presence of God in the Old Testament, people died. But when we come to the New Testament, we see the coming of the Lord in other ways. Now, first of all, we see the coming of the Lord in his first advent, which is what we celebrate at Christmas time. John chapter 1 verse 4 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Well, many people didn't know who this king of glory was. When you say, who is this king of glory in the first advent, we, we know his own did not receive him. People didn't know who he was. He didn't, Jesus wasn't necessarily walking down the street and people thought, there's the king of glory. Some people recognized his glory. John certainly did as he wrote about it. But many gates and doors remained shut to our God who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But after Jesus dies on the cross and he rises from the dead, well, we see the king of glory again. He's won a great battle. He's won the battle against sin and against death and against hell and against Satan. And he ascends into heaven. And you can picture as Jesus ascends to heaven, 
and he's on his way there, the, 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 the gates of heaven, the people there are saying, well, who is this king of glory? As Jesus is ascending, open up your gates, lift up your heads, you ancient doors. The king of glory is coming in. Who is this king of glory? And Jesus could reply, I am the Lord, mighty in battle. I am the Lord who has just won the battle, the greatest battle of all against sin and against death. And the gates of heaven did open up for Jesus. And now there is a man in heaven at the side of the Father. A man, Jesus, who represents us in heaven, who stands there and he pleads on our behalf. He is our advocate. He is standing before the Father and he says, well, they, 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 deserve, they, they can be here. They can stand in your presence, Lord, because I've died for their sin. These verses could be applied to another coming of the Lord, the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also the, the King of glory. The Holy Spirit is God. A God who is strong and mighty in battle as he wages the war of sin in our lives. And we're asked to lift up our heads and open up our, the gates of our hearts to allow the Spirit to enter into our lives and to do that work of making us more like Jesus. But truly and finally, these verses will be seen to be true when the King of Glory comes again in his second advent. You see, at Christmas time, uh, we think about the fact that Jesus came as a baby. He came and he he, he, he came as a baby, he grew as a man, and he died on the cross for our sins. And we celebrate that at Christmas time. But the Advent season reminds us too that he is coming again. Not as a baby, but as a king and judge of the whole world that he owns. Uh, our statement of faith says that the Lord Jesus will return in glory. He will raise the dead and judge the world in righteousness. The wicked will be sent to eternal punishment and the righteous will be welcomed into a life of eternal joy in fellowship with God. God will make all things new and be glorified forever. On the first advent, when people said, who is this king of glory? many didn't know. But the Bible says in the second advent, everyone will see him. Everyone will know that this is the King of glory, the Lord Almighty. That name Lord Almighty in other translations uh, is Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. And it refers to God having the armies of heaven at his beck and call. And when he comes again, he isn't coming as a baby in a manger. He's coming as a judge in the clouds with the armies of heaven with him. And there is no asking at this point whether uh, to open the gates and the doors. He is storming through. And for Christians, this is wonderful. As we lift our heads, we will rejoice 
because we see our king coming and we will be with him on that mountain standing in his holy place forevermore. We will worship him. We will be at rest forever. And wonderfully, the the work of the Holy Spirit of making us more like Jesus will be complete so that we will always have clean hands, pure hearts. There'll be no other idols that we will worship. Our words will always be pure and lovely. It's going to be wonderful. No sin. But for those who reject this King of glory, to those who at this time are shutting the gates and saying, no, I do not want you to come in, well, then the second coming then will cause your heads to be lifted up, not in in, in, in rejoicing, uh, but rather in terror as you see the judge coming to judge you for your sins. And either we have Jesus paying for our sins in his first advent and we trust in that sacrifice, or in the second advent we pay for them ourselves for eternity. And so the appeal from Psalm 24 is for us to respond to the King of glory now. Worship this King of glory. Rest now in the blessing and vindication that he has given you in salvation. Because as our final hymn says in its final verse, Not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by. We shall see him but in heaven set at God's right hand on high. There his children gather round bright like stars with glory crowned. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be with his children? resting and worshipping our King forevermore? If your answer to that question is no or I'm not sure, then come and speak to us afterwards. We would love to tell you more about our King of glory and what he has gloriously done so that you can have a place forevermore resting and worshipping around his throne. Well, we're going to respond with the, the, uh, the whole of the hymn that I've just read the final verse of. Once in Royal David City, let's stand as we respond.